Welcome to After Hours at the Radio Book Club, a podcast that is a collaboration between KGNU and the Boulder Bookstore. I'm Maeve Conran. As always, my co-host, Arsen Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore. We're here at the bookstore with a packed house to speak with author Stephen Graham-Jones. And so do check out the broadcast edition of the podcast where we talk a lot more about his latest book, Don't Fear the Reaper, the second in the Indian Lake trilogy. Right now, though, we're going to get some questions from the audience and put them to Stephen. So I'm going to dive right in with what is the scariest book that you've ever read? The scariest book I've ever read, I'm going to say Jack Ketchum's The Girl Next Door. I've, it's a really brutal novel, and it's not supernatural either, but I think people are the scariest monsters, and that's, that's the monster in The Girl Next Door. It's based on a real thing that happened, which is even worse. I read that novel 13 times, trying to understand how it does what it does, and I finally quit reading it because I was afraid it was going to reprogram me, and, but it's still in my head, in my heart, in my my. DNA kernel at the center of my writer self, you know? Well, that kind of answers the second part of that question, which is, do horror novels even scare you anymore? Oh, every, everything scares me, not just, like, there's an episode of Magnum P.I. that terrifies me, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, I get, I'm scared of, I think that's why I write horror, because I'm so scary, you know? Like, sometimes I'm up on panels with other horror writers, and people ask that question, do you still get scared? And they all say, no, we know the mechanism of a scare, therefore we're immune to it. And that's not the case with me, <laughs> you know? I get, I, I have to, when I'm writing a horror thing, which is always when I'm writing, I have to like put obstacles in the hallway leading to my study, or else my dog or my wife or somebody's gonna suddenly be behind me and I'm gonna jump out of my skin. You know, but, <laughs> but if I hear them coming, trying to get across this and that, then I, I can be ready. But, but in, when I'm writing, if I if I'm not getting creeped out by what I'm writing, and if I'm not thinking I shouldn't be doing this, then I generally go do something else because it's not horror. So you can't scare yourself. Yeah, if I can't scare myself, how can I scare somebody else? <laughs> <laughs> so this is a question about um, the Indian Lake Trilogy, mm -hmm. and the town is Prufrock, Idaho. And somebody wants to know, and this, this popped up in my head, so I'm happy that somebody else is asking it. Did you name the town after the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock by T.S. Eliot? I kind of did. I spelled it different, hoping nobody would notice, but I think people still heard it. You, know? <laughs> you still hear the name in there. But Prufrock seemed to me like a good name for a mining town. And, but yes, it is. I don't especially love that poem. I don't, I don't really especially love anything by T.S. Eliot, but um, I, like, I do like that title. That title is so fetching, the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, and so I just co-opted it. How does it feel to be the darling of book talk? <laughs> Maybe book? explain what book talk oh, is. Is that, is that the book section book of TikTok? TikTok? Yeah, um, that's great, I guess. Um, I, I'm afraid to get on TikTok because I know I'll see a video of myself trying to do a dance or something, and, and I would have to change my name and move to a different place because I'm not a dancer. But um, no, that's great. If, if that's happening, that's wonderful. I, I, I love it when people are enthusiastic about books, and it sounds like that's what's going on on Book Talk. And I guess there's also BookTube and Book Twitter, and there's all these book corners in the world. That makes me happy that people are banding together over their love of books. Not just my books, but just books in general. That thrills me. Do you ever grieve the deaths of your characters, or do you feel like you can pretty much kill them indiscriminately? <laughs> I do. I do grieve them. I, the best example, probably, some of y'all have read The Only Good Indians, right? Um, um, Cass's fiance, Jolene, possibly dies in that, I guess. Some of y'all might not have read it, so I'll say possibly. <laughs> and um, I still feel bad about that. I still think that Jolene was a pretty good person who did nothing to deserve, deserve what she got. But um, it's horror, you know? In horror, you can't protect anybody. It, it, 
if you tell a, if you write a horror novel and nearly everyone who walked into the novel is walking out of the novel, and I think you failed in that horror novel. Um, a horror novel isn't about the whole crowd walking out. A horror novel is about one or two, maybe three people sneaking their way out with a lot of trauma and injuries. Because you don't win at no price. There, there's always a steep price for, for making it through the night. Since Jade is our final girl, who is yours? And also, who is your final girl in Earth? Is it Earth Divers? Earth, Earth Divers, yeah. yeah. The comic um, and, you know, and Earth, Earth Divers is moving in, three, in a few different arcs, so it kind of will have a final different survivor person for every arc, if that person survives. But um, if there is to be a single final girl in Earth Divers, it's probably Sash, if y'all know Sash. But um, who is my final girl? Like my favorite from film, say? It's probably Laurie Strode from Halloween. I like how she puts the safety of her charges, her babysitting charges, ahead of herself. I think that's what she should do. Because um, these kids, they're just going to run into Michael's arms, you know, and he'll probably eviscerate them or something. But, um, I mean, he's already done it to a dog, to two dogs, you know, so, so why aren't kids going to be any different to him? But, but Jamie, Lee Curtis is Laurie Strode. She, she, she's interested in more than herself, you know, and I, I respect that a lot. But, you know, maybe I should amend that. I love Nancy Thompson in A Nightmare on Elm Street. And I, the reason I like her is because in the final showdown with Freddy, instead of, instead of being reduced to adopting his tactics, she instead uses her brain and she thinks her way through. And so few final girls think their way through. Most of them pick up a machete and go machete to machete with the bad guy. And I think that's always a little bit of a loss. They might win the day, but they lose a little of their self, I feel like. But um, I love how Nancy thinks her way through. I really respect that. You mentioned Halloween there, and, and you talked in our last interview, and it's also in the acknowledgments of this book, but Halloween is kind of a seminal movie in your development as a, a horror film. I mean, you were too young to go see it, yeah. but um, maybe you could quickly tell that story oh, yeah. about why, why that movie is so important to you. Yeah, when I was a kid, on and off, I lived with my grandparents, and they lived way out in the pastures in West Texas. Like, you could stand on the porch and not see another light for as long as you look nothing but blackness out there in the mesquite and on the corner of their property my aunt and uncle who I think were still in high school they just got married they were living in a little camper up against the fence and to my six-year-old self they were the titans on my landscape they could do no wrong they like I still wear pearl snap shirts and faded jeans and down at hill boots because my uncle at the time when he was 17 dressed like that you know I still want to be him and and they were just amazing people and so I'm sleeping one cold November night, I think it was, on the floor of my grandmother's living room, and there comes a knock on the door, and I huddle up there in my blanket, answer the door, and it's my aunt and uncle. They're wrapped in a single blanket, and they say, hey, Stevie, can we come sleep on the ground, with, on the floor with you? And I said, yeah, sure, but why? I couldn't imagine what could scare these amazing people to have to come sleep on the cold floor with me. And they said, we just went to town and saw Halloween, and we can't sleep in our place anymore. <laughs> and, uh, and I distinctly remember stepping to the side and holding that screen door open and looking out past them into the blackness of the pasture and thinking, what could do that? You know, what, what could make them having to come sleep on the floor with me? And what I wasn't seeing, what I probably didn't hold the door long enough, open long enough for, was Michael Myers' mask, like, coming into the light, you know? <laughs> you mentioned, well, somebody asked about Earth Divers, and somebody else has a, another question about comics. Talk a little bit about your work in comics. Yeah. I love comic books. I feel like comic books saved my life. Um, when I was 12 years old, well, not just 12, but coming up to 12 years old, 
as I say, we lived way out in the country. Every two weeks on a Wednesday, we would go to the to town to shop, grocery shop. And it was a long, long hike in town. So my mom would always stop at this one gas station at a trailer park and gas up because we had a suburban with a 454 and it gets like four miles to the gallon, <laughs> you know? And, um, but it didn't matter because gas costs like 95 cents. And, and she would give each of us kids three quarters and say we could go into that gas station and buy whatever we wanted. And so I always ran for the Dr. Pepper thing and got me a Dr. Pepper because we didn't have Cokes in the house. And so that was the big treat of every two weeks was a Dr. Pepper. One time I was running through with my three quarters when I was 12 and I got stopped by the, a spinner rack by the counter, and there was comic books on that spinner rack. And the book I plucked out and laid my 75 cents down for was Secret Wars number 10, where Dr. Doom is fighting the Beyonder, who has unlimited cosmic power. Dr. Doom is a bad guy, but who knows if the Beyonder is worse. And Dr. Doom is pushing against this cosmic force and he's lost like an arm, a leg, and he's reduced to rags. He's like 99% dead, but he's still pushing on. And I held on to that splash page, that image, all through high school. All the times that I wanted to quit, that I should have quit, I would say Dr. Doom wouldn't quit. And so I would just keep on going, you know? And I feel like, I feel like that saved my life. And, and comic books have always just meant an immense amount to me. So it's such an honor to be doing a monthly comic book now with IDW and Earth Divers is, um, in 2112, the ecosphere has collapsed. All the rich people are jumping on rockets and leaving Earth and leaving the American Indians behind. And, and due to the falling waters in the rivers and creeks, uh, a cave has been exposed in Arizona. And that cave is a time travel thing you can go back into. And so they go back to 1492 to try to stop Columbus from finding this continent so they can stop America from happening because they think America is the cause of the ecosphere's collapse because America's all been irresponsible in a lot of ways. And so they try and try to change history. Well, someone wants to know who your favorite horror villain is in comics. In comics, um, that's a good question. I would say, I don't know if I'd call him a villain, that's the thing. Um, some of y'all are reading Harrow County, Colin Bunn's Harrow County, right? And there's the skinless boy in that. I love the skinless boy so much. He, I mean, he, he's a kid who runs around and doesn't have skin, obviously. And um, he, he's kind of a victim, but he's scary too, you know? I, I, like, I like him a whole lot, you know? <laughs> so you talked about a little bit about this in the radio broadcast, but what is your process for discovering the plot? Do you start with a character's voice, a scene? I mean, you talked about how you kind of write yourself into plot to some extent, but... Yeah, like to me, plot is not something you figure out beforehand. Plot is what, when you get to the end of the story and you look back at the jagged path that the story has taken to get to here, every one of those turns is a character making a decision. And that jagged path of the character's decisions, that's the plot. And I only figure it out after the fact. I don't ever stack it up and think I should do this here and that there. That would be not fun to me. I think. If I want to surprise a reader, I got to surprise myself. I got to discover things. So yeah, I just uh, I don't necessarily start out with a premise or a situation. I know situations can be quite productive. Um, I just wait for the novel to start speaking, basically, until I hear the voice, and that voice tells me what is the um, relationship. Like how it tells me how exposition is going to be delivered in this novel, and. In my heart is a chainsaw. A lot of the exposition was delivered through Jay Daniels's extra credit papers, and in this one, a lot of the exposition is delivered in a similar manner from different a different person. And but I never know. Like I didn't go into my Don't Fear the Reaper knowing who was writing those little papers. I had to figure it out as I went. 
another writing question. Mm. As a college English professor, mm. what's a reading or writing skill that you would like students to practice or know before they take your class? Direct address commas, man. <laughs> Some, uh, uh, um, Say that again? Direct address commas, like instead of saying, hey, no comma bill, you say, hey, comma bill. And, um, <laughs> and that, it insults me to no end when people skip that comma. I, am, I mean, it, it's a stupid thing. There's more important things in the world than that comma, I know. But um, for some reason, that comma is the hill not only do I die on, but my students' grades die on, you know? <laughs> well, we did notice many people at the store read the book, so yeah. we have several staff members yeah. here. And we have been having comma conversations regarding your work, so yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's definitely come up. Yeah. Um, has the process of writing a trilogy have you reflecting on your past work and what story or character might deserve another look? Cough, mongrels, cough. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what I was gonna say, mongrels. I, when I wrote mongrels, like I didn't conceptualize My Heart is a Chainsaw as the first install, installment of a trilogy. I did conceptualize Mongrels as the first of a trilogy. And so I had the next two books actually not sketched out plot-wise, but I knew who was going to be in them. And I knew like the setting and the year and all that stuff. And, and so after Mongrels came out, I hit that publisher I was with at the time, William Morrow, up, and I said, hey, I'm going to do the next novel now. And they said, nah, we don't want you to be the werewolf guy. And, um, and so then I pitched them an early version. Not pitched them, I showed them an early version of My Heart is a Chainsaw. And they said, not interested. So we broke up and on Lamented Saga, which was the place I should be anyways. You know? I love Mongrels. I mean, if Thank you. that doesn't get a sequel, can werewolves though come back? <laughs> uh, that's the trick. I, I, I love werewolves. I think I, I can always write about werewolves. I wonder if, from me, people will always expect me to do the same kind of werewolf as in Mongrels. You know, I'm not sure about that. I need to feel that out, or maybe just wait longer. But maybe I need to write that second Mongrels book, too. All right, so what are your top five slasher sequels? My top five slasher sequels, I think number one is probably Final Destination 2, with the log jam on the highway, you know? <laughs> The second one is uh, Prom Night 2, Hello Mary Lou, which was not written as a sequel, it just kind of got that title. <laughs> it became the sequel, it's not, it has nothing to do with the first installment. The third one, I'm gonna say Friday the 13th Part 2. Um, I think it's a better slasher than the original, actually. A better told slasher. Fourth, um, let me think. Maybe Scream too. I like seeing I like seeing them go to college. You know, that was neat to go to a different different setting and kind of grow up some. And I always pine for Kevin Williamson's original version that they couldn't do anymore since the script le leaked to the internet. You know, and he had, they had to change everything. I miss that. I miss what it could have been, but it's still pretty good as it is, I think. And the last one, let me think. That's a hard call. I think. I might say Halloween 2, actually. I know that Jamie Lee Curtis has a terrible wig in that one, but um, <laughs> but I, I really, really like how, no, I'm lying. I'm lying. I am going to say, I'm going to say Halloween. I'm going to say Halloween Kills, because it's a sequel to the Halloween 2018. Halloween Kills is where Michael Myers is like a Jason Voorhees type. He just is cutting and slashing, just carving his way through bodies, you know, and that's just endlessly entertaining for me. So yeah, it's, if, that can, if that can count as a sequel, and I think it can because it's a trilogy, you know, Halloween, Halloween Kills, and Halloween Ends, then I would say Halloween Kills. You know, in the book, you reference like, I don't know, Friday the 13th, 5 or 6, or mm -hmm. you go, is there ever a place where 
you know, the franchise is just like, I can't, I can't believe they're going to do another one. Or are you just always, I'm there. I'm there no matter what it is. I generally, I'm there no matter what it is. Yeah, like, um, I love Jason X, Jason 10, where Jason goes to space. That's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I yeah, I'd love, that's what I was going to say. I, I haven't followed Leprechaun yet to all the iterations of Leprechaun. There's like Leprechaun and Children of the Corn. They have both kind of proliferated in crazy directions, <laughs> you know. So here's one. Any tips for exploring trauma through horror writing? Getting started, keeping it healthy. So I, I guess not following your writing down the rabbit hole. Yeah, I mean, you can traumatize yourself, of course. You can also get traumatized by reader response, I guess, and also by your family's response. Um, but um, no, I think art, I mean, art is not therapy, but um, you can still process through things with your art, I think. Um, I think your first goal has, you know, like your first goal is I want to write about real things using fake things, you know? And, and when you're writing about real things with fake, by use, through the vehicle of fake things, I think you automatically bring your own self to that. You can't help it. And so, um, and it's never bad to like talk about the things that are inside of you. And that's basically what you're doing when you're writing fiction. You're talking about the things that are inside you and trying to share it with people. And, how can that not be healthy, I think? And, I mean, even if you got bad stuff inside you, it's good to expose it, I think. You know, you're writing, you, you have some that seem, books that seem more overtly autobiographical, mm -hmm. um, and then you've got others that don't. But as a writer, do you feel the difference there? Like this one I'm processing, or this one, mm -hmm. you know, emotionally? Or, or are they all part of you, and so it doesn't matter how close yeah. to the truth it might be. No, yeah, it doesn't matter. Like, sometimes the more fantastic it is, the more autobiographical it feels to me, actually. Like, I've got my, a novel from 2012, Growing Up Dead in Texas, which has a character named Stephen Graham Jones, and he lives in a house I lived in when I was a kid, and his family is very similar to my family. But that, to me, does not feel as autobiographical as Mongrels does. Mongrels feels like this is my family. This is how we live. We move to a different town every three or four months. And this is my uncle. I can recognize all the people in the story. It feels so much more autobiographical. And it's got werewolves, and we weren't werewolves. But um, <laughs> it, the emotions are real, you know? Um, like Tim O'Brien talks about how to tell a true war, st war story. It's not about getting the facts down as they were. It's about getting them down how they feel, you know? And that's, that's what I always try to do. That's my, my goal. Okay, so you write compellingly about basketball. Did you play or do you play? I did play. I don't play anymore. Um, in high school, my coach used to always tell me, he pulled me aside after practice and say, Stephen, you know you can't eat basketballs when you grow up. And what he was telling me was do good in math class, you know, because I can't, I'm not going to be a ball player when I grow up because I'm only as tall as I am. And, but um, I would say, of course, coach, I know that. But um, secretly inside, I was like, I'm going to live off basketballs, you know, I'm going <laughs> to eat basketballs. And, and so I played, I mean, I played all through high school, well, not all through high school, I got kicked off my, um, I made varsity in junior year, and that team went and undefeated in one state, but I got kicked off right at the front of regionals, I think it was, because coach told me, for every absence you've got, you have to miss a game, and so I did some quick math, my rudimentary math, and I wasn't going to be able to play until I was like 22, so, <laughs> so I got out of that. Um, but I missed it so terribly. And I kept playing on pickup games in little leagues at the Y and around. And I did that all through my 20s and played into my 30s. And I finally blew one of my knees out. I can't remember which one. I had to have microfracture surgery, ACL surgery, meniscus surgery. And finally got recovered from that, which took a long time. And sure enough, then I ruptured my Achilles. And um, 
and coming back from Achilles is even harder than coming back from knee stuff. For me it was anyways, because I went from like bed to wheelchair to walker to cane. And finally after four and a half months, the doctor checked me out and he said, your, your Achilles might as well be made, made of Kevlar, you're bulletproof. And I said, all right, I'm gonna go take over the world. And, and my first act of taking over the world was going on a bike ride around my block and three houses down, my Achilles ruptured in the, again, that same Achilles. <laughs> and, um, and so it was four and a half months more of, of coming back from that. And I was just living through a haze of Vicodin for so long. So long that I was like seeing hallucinations, you know, at the corners of my vision, I was seeing things that I was pretty sure weren't there. And um, I finally had to make a decision, you know, which is going to do me better as I keep aging, basketball or writing fiction, you know? <laughs> and I, being like in my late 30s, I had to suspect that I was kind of out of the running to go pro in basketball, <laughs> you know? And I thought, I do have a little bit of a knack for putting words down on the page, so I had to give up basketball. I don't even let myself shoot free throws anymore, because free throws always turn into catch that rebound, clock's going down, rise up, and then that turned into a game, and pretty soon I'm at the hospital again. So um, I, I miss basketball so badly. Um, I've tried to put basketball in two novels before, and I don't think it's quite worked as I wanted it to. I was finally able to do it in the Only Good Indians, I feel like because I wasn't playing ball at the time, so because I wasn't playing, the only place I could play was on the page through Denora. And, and I could mythologize it properly to make it engaging for the reader, I think. And maybe I'll do basketball some more, I don't know. I've, I, I do have a lot of notes I've been keeping for a basketball story, but I'm, I'm not sure how it's gonna work. So maybe I, maybe I will, I don't know. I love basketball though, I still watch. I, I, don't, I don't let myself have TNT or ESPN at home because I want to be a writer, not a basketball watcher. Because if you give me those channels, I'll sit in front of the TV 18 hours a day and, and watch all the replays and highlights and commentary, you know? But um, I try to write novels instead, so I just watch highlights on Apple TV <laughs> for like six minutes a day. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love that scene in The Only Good Indians. That's a great scene. Oh, thank you. Um, what's your go-to writing playlist? Or do you write to music, or do you? I do. I, um, for every novel, I kick up a new playlist, and I never remember to do it until I'm like two pages in, and I'm, I'm like, it's pretty dang quiet in here. And, um, and so then I kind of go to my stockpile or whatever it is of, of, of songs, and I just scroll through it real fast, and I'm like, I like that one, I like that one, I like that one, and I throw them all in the pile until I have like an hour and a half worth of music. And whatever order they randomly land in, that's generally the order they stay in, and every time I work on that novel, I queue up that playlist always from song one and I never listen to it anywhere else and I only listen to it in the same order every time, never on shuffle. And the result of that is it conditions me that every time I hear the opening bars of that playlist, I immediately am back in the emotional landscape of that novel so I don't have to warm up. Because writing is about stealing time. And when you're stealing time, you don't have time to warm up. You, gotta, you might have 15 minutes only. So you gotta just start like you're on fire immediately. So another pick your favorite mm -hmm. question, this time best nightmare on Elm Street film, only one, like, were there eight nightmares? No, uh, there are seven. seven. There are seven, okay. Well, well, you can also count the Freddy vs. Jason. Yeah, so and the remake. here too. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so which one out of yeah. the seven or eight? I should, I should um, get everybody mad and say the remake, huh? That'd be fun. Um, no. <laughs> um, I think... I know I'm supposed to say Dream Warriors, but I really think number four. I like number four a whole lot. It's got a gearing up montage, which is one of the best gearing up montages in all of horror, I think, where, where the final girl puts on all this like wrist stuff and belts, and it's, it's really cool. I like number four a whole lot. What is number four? Is that the, the Dream Child? What's, let's see. Dream Master, that's it. Dream Master. Yeah, yeah, I think four just really works for me a lot. 
All right, this person wants you to be in a super group, sort of. So would you be open to a Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett style collaboration? I'd suggest Grady Hendrix or Joe Hill. <laughs> yeah, no, no, both them dudes. Um, I probably, I think I'd write better with Grady because Joe, Joe's a, he's kind of an obsessive rewriter, you know? And um, I mean, revision is great, but sometimes you get lucky and get it right the first time too, you know? Um, <laughs> And, but Grady, Grady, he's so strategic with his um, how he deploys scenes and characters. Grady is really a master of externalizing the internal um, on the page. You know, he can always have two characters talking to each other in a way that feels natural to them, but it's also moving the story forward. And that's a really, it's a hard, hard thing to do. He's really a natural at it, or he works really hard at it and does it anyways. But yeah, I've, I've done a collaboration. Paul Tremblay and I wrote a novel together back in 2014, and that was a great time. And I, Paul and I are really good friends. I was really worried going into that that we were going to come out of it not friends anymore and i thought is, is our friendship worth this book that was, that was my big question but we came out of it still great friends and it was a fun fun thing um i don't know if i'd collaborate with somebody again because i write at a different speed than most people and i get bored waiting for them to give me back my piece so i can write another thing you know like um i'll do something in an afternoon and then it takes like 30 days for them to get back to me and i'm like are we even still doing this you know what is, what is going on and, so this person has seen your reviews or your blurb mm -hmm. on many great horror novels. Mm -hmm. So how does your relationship with your peers play into your writing, if at all? You know, they, they raise the bar all the time. I read their work and I'm singularly impressed and they challenge me to be better and hopefully I become better. Hopefully I rise to that challenge. And, and they, it's like every book of my peers that I read is a craft lesson basically on, on how to do it. What is your favorite book in the trilogy? So the third one's not out yet. Yeah. So, so you're gonna go with the first one, the wow. one you're promoting now, yeah. or tell us the, the next one's even better. I think your emphasis tells me I should go with the one now. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but you should still buy. Right now. So what are you reading? And I would add on to that. How do you have time to read given the volume of work that you're producing um, so you're writing so much yeah no i'm always reading right now i'm reading craig clevenger's forthcoming novel mother Howl. some of y'all know craig's work probably he's an amazing writer and reading his prose is just a lesson every time i talk about com you know i was talking about commas earlier craig is able to order his words such that he needs fewer commas which i'm so impressed with it's like it's like it's like he read um stephen pinker's sense of style when he was you know, 10 months old, and it, it got inside him in a good way, and he now does it naturally. And I mean, Craig, he's like a master craftsman. He will chisel on a sentence for like three weeks until it's absolutely perfect. You know, it's really impressive. And so I'm, I'm about 60% through that, I think, and I'm reading Jim Terry's Come Home Indio, a graphic memoir. Um, I say that sounds like it's an X-rated memoir. It's a graphic novel memoir thing, you know. <laughs> it's really, really impressing me. Jim Terry has amazing cartooning skills. Lots of those, lots of those comic book memoirists are really good cartoonists. You know, like comic book art kind of goes either towards representational or towards the cartoony. And I think cartoony is more expressive. Finally, um, if, if you know the how to articulate a. a finger joint or something that's great and that looks realistic but I'm less impressed by realism than I'm than I'm impressed by how evocative an image can be all right I've got my last question mm -hmm. here who do you think would win in a battle of all the final girls mm -hmm. that's a good question I, um, I don't know is this like a steel cage match where there's all the minute or is it just yeah, one-on-one-on-one on one on one, you know, know. So. I'll um, let you choose let me, okay 
a lot of silence here. Um, <laughs> Makes great radio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no. Um, man, I think, I think Lori's made it through the most. So it might be Lori Strode. She's made it through the most installments, I believe. Yeah. And she made it to old age, too. And, and she put, then she put Michael down. So. Well, what a great note to end on. Mm -hmm. Stephen Graham-Jones has been our guest at After Hours at the Radio Book Club, a podcast that's a collaboration between KG and you and the Boulder Bookstore. Stephen, thank you so much, and thanks to our audience for some great questions Thank this you. Evening. This was an honor talking to you all. Thank you. Thank you.